Don't you want your aphid beer? Call me crazy, but I have a thing about drinking from the anus of another creature, okay? Suit yourself. It's the best forgotten Hello and welcome to Best Forgotten Movies, a podcast all about the films that time has forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my co-host Andrew Phillips. Hello. And in an animation double bill, we're going to discuss a pair of films linked by both content and controversy. Today we'll be talking about DreamWorks Ants, directed by Eric Darnell and Tim Johnson, before moving on to Pixar's A Bug's Life, directed by John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton, in the following episode. Beneath our feet lies another world. Why'd I have to be born a worker? In case you haven't noticed, we ants are running the show. We're the lords of the earth. A world just like our own. Okay, everybody, 6.15, time to dance. Don't you want your aphid beer? Call me crazy, but I have a thing about drinking from the caboose of another creature. Suit yourself. Z was just another face in the crowd. Until the day she came into his life. Hi. Want to dance? Absolutely. What on earth are you doing? You know, why does everybody have to dance the same way? You know, that's completely boring. It's no fun. Princess Bala, the guards are coming! You're a princess. When can I see you again? Mm, never. Bye. No, wait. Weaver, you gotta switch places with me. This is the only way I can see Princess Bala. Oh, boy. Princess Bala! Princess Bala! Hey, it's me! Right, first. We received word that the termite enemy has mobilized. This guy's crazy. I am proud to send you into battle. I'm sorry, I'm sorry into battle? Now, destiny will make him a hero. One soldier did make it back. You're the guy from the bar. A worker danced with my fiance. Arrest him. Hey, wait a minute. Let go of me. And it will take him on an adventure. Beyond his wildest dreams. So he kills himself a hundred termites. Then bada bing, bada bip, bags himself the princess. I can't believe you tried to pass yourself off as a soldier. The trick is not to panic. And he's about to discover that the challenges of the outside world are the least of his problems. I've been kidnapped by the village idiot. I know almost exactly what I'm doing. We will spare no effort to bring her back. One ant. See, help me! Will rise above it all oh! to prove that he's one in a million. DreamWorks Pictures and PDI present. It looks like this is it. Just when I was starting to like you. Ants. So let's begin with the juicy controversy. These two animated films are linked by Jeffrey Katzenberg, an ex-Disney employee who used his DreamWorks film as ammunition against his former studio. Andy, can you tell us a little more about the controversy behind these two films? So the main story is Jeffrey Katzenberg was originally a very high-flying executive at Disney and he was responsible for the whole 1984 to 1994 push which caused the first Disney renaissance. Obviously at the moment we're kind of in the second Disney renaissance but no one seems to have called it yet. I think everyone's just far too cautious which seems to happen a lot these days. They don't want um, to, uh, yeah, don't they want don't, to ruin they the run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think we definitely are, especially with um, Frozen. 
which I, uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> even so, uh, it's still making a lot of money. But he was pretty much responsible for um, spearheading that, that revolution. But to cut a long story short, Jeffrey Katzenberg leaves Disney at the end of 94. It was quite public as well. Like, very public yeah, indeed, it was yeah. very much in the public eye. So what happens after this is that Jeffrey Katzenberg forms a new company with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen, which is obviously called DreamWorks. SKG. Uh, SKG, which I don't know how it, in what way it exists now in terms of a complete studio, but at the time it was a completely fully functioning studio. Mm-hmm. They sold it off, didn't they? Um, DreamWorks, they sold it off sometime yeah. in the mid noughties I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They call them noughties Because I think but... it's just down as a more like a production company now. Really, yeah, yeah, it studio. is. Yeah, absolutely. But um, their very first film was, was Mouse Hunt, which I think is another film we'll probably be discussing on absolutely. one of these podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so they were a fully functioning studio, and, and because Katzenberg had just fallen in love with animation, he really, really genuinely loved it. And I, even to this day, I think he genuinely still loves the medium. Within the structure of the studio, it was always going to be that there was going to be a very, very heavy animation presence. So whilst this is going on as well, we've got Pixar. They've created Toy Story. Mm-hmm. No one was were really sure whether it was going to work. So they took that gamble, and it paid off in spades. Prior to that, they were planning on what their next films could possibly be. And obviously the one that they wanted to do next was one involving bugs. They were planning their movie. And what was happening, obviously, over at DreamWorks is that they were coalescing and and amassing a a very ambitious program for their animation division. So they were going to have a traditional animation division, which was based in Universal City. And then they were going to have another unit, which is going to be a computer animation division, which was like a co-production between DreamWorks and Pacific Data Images, which is based in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Jeffrey Katzenberg had heard about A Bug's Life. Actually, I think what happened was, I think Jeffrey Katzenberg had invited Lasseter and Andrew Stanton. They invited them over to mm-hmm. DreamWorks Studio to show them around because at this time it was kind of like, you know, we're doing a rival studio, but it, we don't want it to be a bit of a battle. And then apparently through this visit, Katzenberg was asking Lasseter a lot of questions about what films they were making. Mm-hmm. So they were asking a lot of questions about Bugs Life and he was even asking when the projected release date was, Yeah, which obviously at the time you wouldn't have thought of anything of. So all of a sudden, in sort of like April, May 96, DreamWorks announces that it's going to be creating a film called Ants, which it just almost just come out of nowhere. This just sets off alarm bells at Pixar. And there's a lot of stories regarding as to where the idea for Ants came from. There's probably about three or four different stories, and we'll probably never know which one is completely true. Uh It kind of really looked like Katzenberg was really out to sort of rival Disney in a more blatant sense in terms of like, you do a movie, I'll do a movie that's the same. Yeah. And obviously when you look at the trajectory of DreamWorks, there are comparisons that you can make with a couple of Pixar films that they've made. Like from a lesser stretch, you could probably compare Shrek and Monsters Incorporated, but you can definitely compare Finding Nemo with a shark tail, and oh we kind God. of all know how that paid off. Yeah, I think that's where those ties well ended, really. Yeah, when, that, when that, Shark Tail really because they've been coming off second best in this this head to head time after time after time, with probably the exception of Shrek, which managed to make Pixar numbers, and yeah. it's still quite a popular franchise name. But yeah, absolutely, I think that was the one that booked the trend. The Shark Tail that was the one that kind of ended that. It I jumped the shark. Thank Christ, I yeah. did jump. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this sort of started a very sort of tumultuous time between the two studios, and there was a lot of maneuvering over release dates. 
there was a lot of issues regarding which film was going to come out first. And there's a rumor that's never really been confirmed that Katzenberg was offering PDI a lot of financial incentives in order to get the film out before Bug's Life. I think Bug's Life was for December, I think, or November. It no- came out in November. November. Yeah, late November. Yeah. It opened limited and then wide. Yeah. Um, Whereas uh, Ants was actually released in October. Mm-hmm. There was also manoeuvrings regarding the release date of Prince of Egypt, which was their second film, which came out pretty much a month or two after Mm -hmm. Ants, and the release of Bugs Life itself. So Pixar wouldn't budge for Prince of Egypt, Mm. and as it stands, Ants came out before Bugs Life. Although they're both films about insects, they do veer off in a lot of different directions. They are quite good to compare to each other because they are completely different films. Yeah, stylistically as well, and in terms of the story that they're trying to tell. I mean, you could argue that there's something to be said about the protagonist feeling that he's undervalued by his society and whatnot. There's perhaps a tinsy bit of that in Flick, but um, it, otherwise it feels like a completely different film, visually, tonally, because it just goes off in its own direction, Ants. Yeah. So yeah, now that we've got a little bit of the history behind us in terms of these two films um, and how they are almost, their productions are intrinsically linked I want to prefix this whole discussion by saying I haven't seen Ants in about 10 years and I watched it last night for the first time in that long. Same here as well. Um, yeah. yeah, whereas A Bug's Life is a film that I constantly go back to. And I want to just prefix this whole thing by saying that when Ants came out, during this whole head-to-head, Ants was the better film in my opinion. Ants was the film that I enjoyed most as being a kid. I was only about 12 but I walked away thinking Ants was the better of the two. Yeah, and I kind of felt similar. I mean, I kind of, they were kind of both equal in my estimations, really, but I did really enjoy Ants at the time. But yeah, we both watched the films last night, and yeah, it kind of wielded very interesting results. Absolutely, yeah. I would say that 10 years ago, when I last watched Ants, I started to feel like, oh, this isn't the film that I remembered. It's yeah. not quite as good as I remembered. And I think because of the time that it was released and the age that I was at, I was at a point where. I was looking for a little bit of edginess in the films. I wanted to distance myself from the um, the childhood animation stuff that I'd been watching and say, oh, look, I'm getting older now. Look at what I like now. This says bitch and crap in it, so I clearly like this more. It's got more pop culture references, so I like it more. But that dates a film. <laughs> it means that those films are left behind really quickly, like swiftly. It's just gone. Yeah, I mean, Ants is really going for uh, an adult and teenage audience rather than a a children's or universal audience because Bugs mm. Life is really kind of out there for a universal audience. It doesn't matter how old you are, you can enjoy Bugs Life. Whereas with Ants, it's definitely got a uh, specific market for it. It really plays on pop culture references and also traits of the actors in the film and that's probably something that we'll, mm-hmm. we'll come on to next really yeah i think so because um, in terms of the design of the characters when you look at both films if you look at a bug's life there's no caricatures there there's nobody that you can say oh that's that person and this is that person you know it very much feel like rounded characters that have been originally they've been made on the script and then voice cast appropriately whereas you then move that over to Ants where it's clear that they've got all the big names that they can, pushed them into a booth and had them record the dialogue and then fixed the character designs around those voices. Yeah. And it's it, it leads to some unfortunate problems really in terms of the animation as well. I, I still view Ants actually more so than Shrek as being really a 
almost like a mission statement for DreamWorks. And it's kind of something that they've, they've replicated time and time again, which is the idea of bringing in big name actors, mainly putting their names above the title, as if you were doing mm. a big blockbuster film, and then really selling it on the personalities of those actors, but not on the personalities of the characters in the film. So you get films like uh, Shark Tale, which is... You've got people like Will Smith, Angelina Jolie, and Robert De Niro, and I also think even that's, Martin Scorsese. That's a film where the caricatures are at their worst. Yeah, yeah they, it, that's kind of the nadir of the caricature. It, yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, at least now when you look at, for instance, Kung Fu Panda, which does still embody some of those issues, it is a film that you do feel like is built around Jack Black as a, as a comic. But... At the same time, that is a character that still works on his own. And yeah. it's, it's still a film that works on its own. It's almost like you get these films through DreamWorks every now and again that work in spite of themselves. Today, yeah. you know? I mean, there's a lot of films that they have done that have been that thing we were talking about last night, actually, in terms of B-Movie, which is basically a film that's completely around Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, Megamind, which is, again, it's basically Will a Will Ferrell, Ferrell Brad movie. Pitt, yeah. And then you've got recently, you've got Home, which is their latest release which is built around Jim Parsons from Big Bang Theory. And even their other films, even like films like Over the Hedge and Madagascar, they're all built around big names. So I think in context, when you look back, it's really clear that Ants was uh, a blueprint for their method of making films. Obviously, we're going to start from the beginning of this film now because right from the bat, it kind of shows this. In terms of the title sequence, which really involves a white background with a magnifying glass on it, and in the magnifying glass, it sort of hovers over some really small type names, and then when it comes up, it's the names of all the actors that are in the film. Yeah. And right from off the bat, it's really saying, this is a film about actors. And they're really trying to get the money's worth as well in terms of that caricature. You know, it's, it's like, we've got these people. We want people to recognise these actors yeah, in it, the film. In terms of Ants as a cast, it's probably got one of the biggest celebrity casts of all DreamWorks films. Mm. I mean, you've got, you've got obviously got Woody Allen. Um, so it really is like a Woody Allen film. It's um, probably the best Woody Allen film at the time, actually, yeah. <laughs> considering the kind of output Woody Allen had in the nineties. Yeah, but then you've and then obviously you've got Gene Hackman and Christopher Walken and uh, Jennifer Lopez, mm. Sylvester Stallone, Danny Glover. Yeah, um, it's so this is so many people. And then Dan Aykroyd doing the weirdest, weirdest character I've ever seen. Oh my, yeah, really uh, weird. And it, it's so cruel. His character is dealt with so cruelly, and he's yeah. essentially just there to get our protagonist from A to B. <laughs> B, he's yeah. a wasp. Although um, you can probably never argue that Dan Aykroyd was really normal at this point, but uh, yeah, yeah, with his old Crystal uh, Skull fetish, and yeah, he was probably making his Crystal Skull vodka at the yeah, time. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's really emphasising the actors over anything else, and then yeah, we we kind of siege into a typical uh, Woody Allen trope, which is the psychiatrist chair, and and basically just a, a really big long two minute monologue to start the film. I mean, and to take it even further, you've got the Woody Allen trope of opening on a skyline. Obviously there's a nice reveal that it's actually grass. You're meant to believe that it's New York yeah. but it turns out it's just the way that the grass has been cut and the way it's silhouetted. But it's it's that Woody Allen trope of opening against a city and listening to him talk in his, that neurotic way that he does, you know. <laughs> the character is very much Woody Allen and kind of, he's, he's very pessimistic and he's, he's very whining and he kind of complains about his role within this society, which is obviously an impressive ant colony. I want to talk about that character for a second, just uh, yeah, yeah. since we've just got into it. Uh, and especially in comparison to the main character in A Bug's Life, Flick. The thing is with the Woody Allen character, 
what's his name? Um, Z. Z, yeah, in Ants, is that if you take Woody Allen out of that character, there is no character left. It, it works only because of the casting, purely and utterly. Mm. And beyond that, there is actually nothing else to the character. He's very one-dimensional and very much it honestly feels like a spit and image puppet version of Woody Allen whereas if you look at Flick that is a well-rounded character it doesn't it's not just a voice it's not just hey look it's this guy doing this voice yeah. for this particular character it's a well-rounded character that has his goals and his dreams and his things that he, he wants from his life and he's optimistic and he's so much more endearing as a character yeah. and he works not because it's just we've got this actor he works because of the writing because on page it absolutely works. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Z doesn't for me. No. And I, I think, again, this is going to be something we're going to really be discussing with this film and that Z's character doesn't really have a proper arc. There's a couple of beats where he does slightly change his personality, mm. uh, where he sort of decides to help somebody or slightly accepts that he's in a colony. But by the end of the film, you don't really feel like he's become a different kind of character. Even at the end of the film, he's still saying he's, he's seeing a new therapist, which basically means... He's not really altered his uh, outlook on life that much. Yeah. I mean, as well, it starts off that he's um, he's a very selfish character. I mean, it, it starts off that way. It starts off with him talking about himself. And and that's that, that doesn't change for a lot of the film. Mm. He's still a very selfish character, even just right up until the point he decides to save the princess. Uh, there's not much endearing about him whatsoever. And you also don't get any real idea of what has led him to be this way. To compare it to another Pixar film, as we have been doing throughout this process, looking at the character of Marlon from Finding Nemo, we are introduced to him with a really harrowing scene in which he loses pretty much everything that he loves, apart from one little leg, which is Nemo. And that that feeds into all of his neurosis, all of everything that would be annoying about his character in, an, in another film if we didn't know that it turns it all to make it endearing because he's a loving father that's just really overprotective there's none of that would would z in ants instead he's just unlikable he's selfish got has all these neuroses that are just like woody allen traits but we never know what really feeds into that other than the fact that he's an ant and he's part of a large family which is what every ant's gonna exactly. be exactly so yeah there is actually some good use of lighting in this scene like probably one of the better uses of lighting in 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 the whole film actually so we go from this this scene which is it's not a really dynamic scene or it is kind of setting the tone but it's a bit flat you know for the opening of a big film and then you, you do kind of get that but it comes a little bit late we go through the window into this huge huge ant colony which you don't really see that much of or really feel like you're integrated with it. And there is some good music at this point as well, which is by uh, John Powell and Harry Gregson Williams. And their score is really good in places and then really inconsistent in others, which, yeah, it's kind of like the, the entire film, really. It feels quite cheap at times because it feels like there's some cues that have been made up entirely of since when they're begging to be ha have an orchestra behind them. And then there's some cues that have actually got an orchestra exactly. on them, like as if they didn't have time to record the orchestra because they were like that up against the deadline. Yeah, exactly. And Which also, probably is what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's also a few shades of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean a couple of times as well. This, I mean, this film obviously predates that, but I always like to see where the music comes from. Like, you can see yeah. that those themes have been knocking about these individuals for a while. It does feel cheap. It, it does feel rushed um, yeah. at times, but other times it, it's it's great. Mm. We're going to this ant colony, but there's... um. 
and it is it is very big. I mean, even when you compare it to Bugs Life, it's a very big environment. But the main issue is, is that because of the lack of time that they seem to have had in the production, that it's all very glossed over. And you see, you see thousands and thousands of ants and, and lots of ants in close-up doing all their little jobs. But um, it doesn't feel like it's a real situation because you feel like they've just not had the time to put the, the detail in these characters and, and the backgrounds and everything. Yeah. I mean, for me, there does definitely seem to be a divorce between the background and the foreground in terms of um, quality. And the whole film... Well, I'd say like 80% of the film plays out in very tight close-ups yeah. of, of um, the lead characters. And even during those times, the background characters are either ridiculously out of focus, so you can't see any detail pretty much all mm. the time. Or there's this haziness to it yeah. where you can really see that divorce. And it doesn't feel like a real environment as a result. Yeah, and there's only really two sequences in the whole film that utilise the space effectively, which is uh, the scene which literally comes up straight after, which is when they have to all join together to create a wrecking ball to actually knock down some earth, which genuinely looks good. It looks great. For the few shots that it's in the film, that wrecking ball looks absolutely fantastic. And you can really f see them interacting with their environment a lot mm. and then immediately after it goes back to some really poor scenes in terms of construction and also just the quality of them and then the other scene which which is more towards the end of the film which is when they have to escape the, the actual tunnel when it's flooding that's the only other time when they really utilize any of the space mm -hmm. that is around them the rest of the time it's just purely there as background and like i said that the quality of, of shots you'll get a couple of shots that look really good and then other shots that just don't look good at all or yeah. they're in a really weird composition or it just doesn't look like they've been able to finish it off like it just looks mm -hmm. like they, they they've just been trying to rush through these things as, as quickly as they possibly can and you know just about got away with it yeah, I mean, if you actually spend your time watching a film and looking at the background characters as well, um, which they usually aren't many, but if you look at them, they seem to be moving as if programmed by a computer, not by a human hand. So you can almost see the ones and zeros in terms yeah. of the, the movements, which are often few. <laughs> I know there's a couple of times in the film where they really play on like, like there's the dance scene, which almost like parodies it. That's yeah, the, that's the only place where that part really works because it's it, kind yeah. of is there for the story. And yeah, I mean, they do try and get away with it because it's ants. And I guess the, you know, the, the old idea is they have a hive mind. Is that ants? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, even so, it's never really played on in a big way anyway, in terms of the main characters in the film. So even as an excuse, it feels quite flimsy. So we're jumping to the characters of, of Bala and General Mandible. So Bala's played by Sharon Stone, who doesn't fit her character design whatsoever. No. Uh, and then, we, yeah, we've got General Mandible, who's played by Gene Hatman, who looks somewhere between uh, Michael Ironside, uh, Richard <laughs> Burton, and George C. Scott. And there is actually, later on in the film, there is a proper uh, rip-off slash homage to Patton. I mean, in the first, I counted in the first um, 20, 25 minutes, we had references to many Woody Allen films, Pulp Fiction, Patton, Aliens, 2001 A Space Odyssey and more. Constant, just uh, It's a constant stream of pop culture references as, yeah. as a way to kind of get you past the fact that the film has no real story to it. It's just a yeah, series of it, happenings. Yeah. It's like getting you from the one reference to the next. Those are the jokes. There's no setup and payoff. It's like, hey, look at this thing that you remember seeing. You know, we remember it as well. The plot of this film is is and I didn't really realise it until until recently. The plot of the film is very, very slight. And the the most annoying thing of the film, you don't really get to know the plot 
until about 10 minutes before the film ends. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, like I said, there's not many characters that really have any arcs. And again, uh, and just going back to the inconsistent shots, this goes for the characters themselves because we, we kind of, we, we just missed one. We actually uh, forgot to mention uh, Weaver, the character of Weaver, who's played oh. by Sylvester Stallone. We have the character of Z, who is obviously our main character. And he is by far the most expressive of all the characters in the whole film. So they've really gone out of their way to really replicate sort of how Woody Allen moves and speaks. And that on the whole is very, very good. And it almost looks as if, like, Z is, like, the A puppet. This is the puppet that they've had mm -hmm. the most time to work on and and really get into the, all the controls and all the muscles and everything. If you watch some of the little documentaries and how DreamWorks create their characters, they really have, um, have like, a reversed anatomy approach where they have a skeleton and they actually have physical uh, muscles which move underneath the skin. So you've got Z, and then you cut over to Weaver, who is probably the most obvious caricature in the whole film they've basically given him all the traits of Sylvester Stallone right down to the Bell's palsy mm, uh, yeah <laughs> so uh but I think in, in in doing so I mean I think most of the characters they almost look like B characters like they're B, the B puppets where they've just not had enough time to really develop them structurally but also in terms of the character design that they've gone so far down this caricature route with this character Weaver that it looks like he's been really hard to animate for people to actually make him look expressive because as we all know Sylvester Stallone isn't the most expressive actor of all time and to actually make a character look like that really hems you in in terms of what kind of expressions you can put on that character's face. Yeah it's very limited in terms of the emotions that that character shows it's mostly just Sylvester Stallone's happy and sad face throughout <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the entirety of the film. Yeah. Uh, there's not much else going on there. Yeah, I will say though, I do think that his performance, in in terms of voice performance, he's putting his all into it, and he actually comes out with a couple of the best gags as well. There are a couple of the voice actors that really do shine through. I mean, I do, I do still like Gene Hackman as General Mandible. I mean, I know he actually really enjoyed making the film at the time. Yeah, but that's also a character um, that works even with the voice casting of Gene Hackman, the star casting. His character isn't a caricature. Of no. Gene Hackman. Like we say, there's all those references to him. There's Patton, there's Michael Ironside, there's Richard Burton. But it doesn't look like Gene Hackman. Like, everybody no. else looks no. like their voice acting counterpart. Which, again, that, that's a character that would work if you take away that casting. Add somebody else to it who could also do that kind of yeah. voice. It would still absolutely work. Yeah, he's one of the only real genuine characters in the film. On the other hand, Christopher Walken's character, and I absolutely love Christopher Walken. Yeah. But, um... Sorry. Sorry, that's Landau Carazzi in there. <laughs> just turned me phone just off. got Billy D. Williams walking to the studio. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, uh, his second-in-command, Cutter, is played by Christopher Walken, and he adds nothing to the film at all. He's just, he's just there to be Christopher Walken. Mm -hmm. You don't know anything about this character. You know, you couldn't ask someone in the street, oh, what, what was his character? A lot of the times in the film, and this is, again... I hate to be so pessimistic about DreamWorks, but this is something that I do see time and time again, is that you get characters where it's almost a little bit like Star Wars, uh, the prequels, where you have characters where give me a description of this character without saying the actor's name or what they're doing in the film. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the time you can't do it. No, no. I mean, the most you could say for Cutter is he's loyal and even by the end he's not very loyal no so, <laughs> what, what, he's what? got wings yeah yeah he's christopher walken yeah <laughs> you know, he's the character played by christopher walken and also like you've got the other character which we haven't mentioned which is weaver's sort of 
love interest, which is Azteca, which is played by um, Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez. God knows what reason. But she has no character at all. Again, that's another character who's Weaver's and Z's buddy, who's played by Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. She has no arc or any other presence in the story other than just to be there. Yeah, and it reaches its worst point when uh, Danny Glover's introduced as well. Yeah, as as Barbados. Yeah, Barbados, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, the general part of the story here is that General Mandible is trying to create some sort of, like, perfect colony, although his reasons are really never really explored, and we don't really understand why, or it doesn't really... It seems like a very convoluted and kind of impractical plan that he's concocting. Yeah, paused the film at 50 minutes in, and we were still asking the question is... What is this film about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what is his goal? What's he doing? Uh, we, we know it's something ominous and that he wants to kill everybody because he generally does kill everybody. But I still didn't know what his motivation was as a villain. And it wasn't like it was revealed later on as some big twist. No. It's just it comes out in the dialogue at the end of the film. I don't understand why they held that back for so long and didn't give us, the audience, any real information no. that would have helped us to understand what his goal was. It ends up just being very, like you say, wishy-washy, very yeah. hazy. So, I mean, at this point, Z's met Princess Bala, who, again, is just a kind of typical spoiled brat, and she's met him in a bar and then falls in love with her in that time, but really there's no real connection between those two characters that, that much, and he wants to see her again. But at this point, because General Mandible's concocting his plan, he's planning to basically kill off all of the soldiers loyal to the Queen. Although this, again, is not really explained that well in the film. But Z gets himself mixed up. He, he swaps himself with Weaver, who is an army ant, and they swap places. And they get sent off to war. And this is where uh, Z meets the character of Barbatus, which is played by Danny Glover and yet another obvious caricature. So, yeah, and then they go and attack this termite mound. And it all goes very Starship Troopers for a little while. It does, yeah. But the, the main thing is, is that this character, Barbatus, is a very, very minor character, but obviously played by a, a fairly major actor. Yeah. And obviously they sought to use him as effectively as they could. But this whole sequence, right from the, the lineup, right through the battle, uh, and to the aftermath of the battle, is about five minutes of the film. Yeah, if five yeah, yeah. at most. And this, again, kind of really sort of emphasises what directions the film was being pulled in. Yeah. Because all the soldiers, apart from Z, get killed. And what we're left with is just the head of Barbatus. Which is still alive at that point. Yeah, and it's just his death scene. But the way that it's shot and the way it's played out and the way the music Mm. rises and swells... There's such reverence for this character that we don't know. We've known this character for like two minutes and it kind of treats it as if it's the secondary character in the whole film has just died. Yeah, I mean, Obi-Wan didn't get this kind of send-off. No. It, it really does dwell on it, and there's no other reason for them to dwell on it other than the fact that it's not because it's, oh, it's Barbatus, it's because it's, oh, it's Danny Glover. You could tell that it was a character that on page probably only had a couple of lines, and then they cast Danny Glover. So yeah. we need to give this character more to do. And it sums up the film in general in terms of that. It's, it deals with these characters, not on a character level, but on an actor level that's where all the weight of these characters come from is the caricature i say weight there's very little (laughs) (laughs) what happened next (laughs) (laughs) going back to the story of this now so obviously z's come back and he's the only one that survived and he's uh treated as a as a war hero and obviously mandible's suspicious of him uh and obviously he's, he's got into a position where he can um see princess bala who again has no redeeming features at this point at all but 
Yeah, they get themselves into a situation where they get outside mm-hmm. for what looks like Tatooine. Yeah, it looks very much like a big Star Wars moment. And then, yeah, they get chased by some soldiers, but they get very quickly dispatched by a, a human with a magnifying glass. And a very Independence Day-like yeah. <laughs> style. And yeah, they go from there in terms of she wants to get back to the colony. He wants to go on to this. We've spoke about it. We haven't spoken we about it. We haven't spoken about This is the concept of Insectopia, which... They kind of build it up to being more than it actually is. It doesn't really pay off. It's just kind of there to get them to a certain place and then back again. Yeah, I mean, by this point, you could really tell that the story is made up of a series of just things happening. Uh, to, to use a description of a story that works from Matt Stone and Trey Parker, but the thing that they always say about story is what works is when things happen because another thing happens. So what you want is a script that is always relying on because because this happened, that happened, and because that happened, this happened. This is a film where things just happen. It's this happened, and then that happens, and then that happens. It's There's no because, there's no cause and effect. It's just a series of things thrown together to like oh we need to get the character from a to b let's add this character that'll get them there and uh and whatnot that that sums up the film there's a real lack of setups and payoffs oh absolutely any setups that are there are very clumsy setups where they're just it's a nothing character to perform a particular function which we'll get onto very very shortly with the character of chip which is dan Aykroyd's character they kind of spend about another sort of couple of minutes bickering with each other outside and then they get themselves stuck in a a bead of dew and sort of Bala has to rescue Z and they from this point onwards they seem to bond more but yeah. there's no real reason for it mm-hmm. other than like she saved his life but there's no character yeah. motivated reason as to why they're coming closer and closer together I mean they're both utterly unlikable as characters so, yeah, in and, and, yeah in, in their own different ways I would say that uh, perhaps Bala is more um I was more sympathetic towards her because of the the whole thing that's hanging over her head. She's being forced into her marriage and to become a baby-making machine. Yeah. Really. And you understand a little bit of where her attitude comes from, but there's nothing really that makes them likeable or endearing characters. And all of a sudden, at one point, they just start liking each other for no discernible reason. Yeah, there's no there's no real connection between the two characters, and there's no there's no story connection between between no. the two either. In terms of like, uh, there's no place in where they align. I would say there's the uh, like a slight thematic connection, and that they both feel like they don't belong in terms of um, where where they are, their social status and whatnot. Yeah, but even so, she seems to use the whole "I'm a princess" thing. Yeah. Far too often for somebody that doesn't like the fact that she's a princess. Yeah, it's kind of double standards. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and again, like they. God, what a bitch! That, that part doesn't really. None of it pays off in terms of those two viewpoints. They don't pay off other than the fact that they get together. Yeah. They cross the lake, which is basically a a pond, which is kind of a setup. Again, it's not particularly well done. It's a very clumsy setup. The the lake itself doesn't really offer any kind of story points really, and. They end up on a picnic mat, which they think is Insectopia. And there's a couple of good visual gags here involving cling film, which I still use to this day is regarding force fields. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's something that has uh, endured over the time. But um, I, I just want to mention here at this point, so when they get to this picnic, there's just so much product placement. 
it's almost like it's just suddenly appears out of nowhere. So the idea that they've had is to create this picnic, but use real world items on the actual picnic mat. So you've got Mountain Dew, Pepsi, God knows what else. It looks like they've done a, a deal with Pepsi at this point. Yeah. Probably there would have been some sort of ants promotion at the time with Pepsi, I imagine. Who wants ants in the Pepsi? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, there's just so much product placement at this point of the film. And it's just like, really hits you in the face it's really really it comes out, out of nowhere yeah, yeah it really does and to, to be honest i get that it's justifiable for it to be there by the story because it's a picnic and yeah there's going to be stuff there like that and they're trying to tie it to the real world but because there's been none of that in the rest of the film to so see it so blatantly in your face kind of the pepsi slogan yeah right there in the frame just drawing your attention it comes out of nowhere and it takes you completely out of the film just in one shot. Yeah. Totally. Um, it's, it's product placement done badly. And if they would have done it right in the framing, may integrated it into the scene a bit better, it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have made a difference. At this point, we meet the characters of, uh, of Chip and Muffy. Chip being voiced by Dan Aykroyd. And they're actually, they're, they're both wasps. So they're played out to be much bigger than the ants. And they're played as almost like a, a very posh New England kind of couple. Yeah, actually like the design of them as well. Yeah, and and they work really nicely for about a minute. Yeah. Um, and then the character of Muffy gets the most cruelly handed death scene I've ever seen in a film. They've set this character up for, for not deserving this kind of death at all. I suppose they are trying to illustrate the fact that insects can just get killed in an instant. But the way that they handle it is... Um, really matter of fact and it's upsetting yeah it's really like it's really it's really cruel um yeah and, and it doesn't really work with the tone of the film either no, it's kind not. of like again this is kind of like they're aiming it for an adult audience but there's other bits that are a little bit more universal and the tone's very choppy yeah i remember when i was a kid seeing this film and thinking that actually it was quite cruel at times yeah, yeah. and then there's a very elaborate action sequence involving Chungle chewing gum shoe. and shoes <laughs> from a very disembodied pair of legs yeah. which you never really see the rest of their torso it's like almost, no. it's almost like they just had enough time to do the legs and the feet yeah. but no time to do anything else so it just feels like they're really really long legs yeah. not attached to anything but yeah and then they get to this insectopia which doesn't pay off at all um, wow. they get there and there's a couple of bits and pieces. I know there's like a roller coaster ride and an apple, um, <laughs> and some surfer dudes <laughs> like stoners uh, around a little fire. And obviously there's the bins, but nothing is really made of it in a story context. There's nothing that they do there that changes the characters at all. No, I'd rather it be some kind of working civilization that you know, think like some some grand city made out of garbage and whatnot. And it doesn't feel like that. It's just a series of 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 little things around a trash can, really. And, it's and I not, get there's a roller coaster there, but yeah. it, it makes no sense for why this place is so kind of revered. Yeah, why, it, why they want to get there so much? And you know? the, the, there's nothing that that shows them that like this is the better way of life, and this is something that no. can, that they can bring back home with them. Yeah, to, to maybe alter the the structure of the society. There's nothing there. Like, no, no, that's it. If there was like, for instance, a different political landscape there in terms of the way that the place is run and suddenly that he realizes oh no this is how things should be we could take this and take it back home it doesn't play on that at all it's just a trash can right so yeah they get to insectopia which doesn't mean anything at all they're just it's just you just they're at a particular junction here in their journey and so meanwhile 
General Mandible's been continuing this plan of building this tunnel. So they've been building this this mega tunnel, which is basically what all the worker ants have been building all the way through the whole film. And the idea of General Mandible is to actually... They're building the tunnel underneath this lake, which uh, Z and Bala crossed. And the idea is that they're going to build the tunnel in such a way that it's going to flood the rest of the colony. Very is, slowly. Yeah, and he's going to create a new colony. But obviously we don't find this part out till. 10 minutes towards the end. Meanwhile, whilst they're building this tunnel, the story of Z and how he's sort of kidnapped the princess has been Chinese whispered way around the around the workplace. So it's got to a point where it's become this legendary character that's sort of overthrown the, the oppressors and things mm-hmm. like that. And then we get this really odd scene where obviously they start to revolt and there's like they literally have this kind of like 1960s style protest. Uh, which is addressed by General Mandible, and then by the end of the scene, he manages to turn them around, which, again, just... It begs the question, why is he going to kill everybody if they're so easily manipulated? Yeah. Why can't he just manipulate everybody into following him, like he continues to do throughout the film? Absolutely. It's, it's almost like, again, this is one of these things where it's a writing 101 where you can't set something up and resolve it in the same sequence or scenes, and this is exactly what they do. So... They come to this point where they're going to revolt, and then General Mandible, literally all he has to do is say like a couple of words, and then they're back to normal again. Why did they even bother having a revolution? They're, they're not plot? just back to normal again. They're better. Yeah, they're yeah. working faster. They're working towards a goal. Again, it begs the question, why? Why is he doing it then? But in, in this scene, which is a very strange scene, they have a chant for Z, but then all of a sudden they start singing Give Peace a Chance for no reason, and there's no kind of ant context for it either. They just suddenly start singing it, it feels very out of place because it's kind of one of those obvious human pop culture references that's just been shoved into this ant world for it doesn't have any grounding at all. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of feel in a way the only reason it's in the film is to give Jennifer Lopez one line where she can actually sing in the film. Yeah. Because it doesn't even really make sense in the context of what they're protesting about either. No, absolutely. Uh, so it's very, very odd. So we have all this happening and there's going to be some big gathering in the in the central hall in the middle of this tunnel where the queen's going to be present and this is where they're going to sort of surround everybody with water and drown everybody and general mandible's task cutter with getting bala which he seems to do really really easily yeah it's um, like it's, uh, what's his name weaver lets loose to z is at insectopia and it's like oh insectopia isn't a place and then mandible says oh you know i know where it is here it is and within a matter of a minute they've gone back they've picked her up yeah. and brought her back again why haven't he played on this idea that insectopia is a known place by mandible yeah. why isn't that if it was set up as a, like no- a known place that he's trying to hide from them yeah exactly yeah it, it's not integrated into the story all this knowledge it's like almost the, it's the writers writing themselves out of situations time and time again they set up their problems and resolve them within like you say within a scene or so but they're using the cheat card every single time if you wanted to make the film about Insectopia or whatnot, why not set up Insectopia as another civilization that's run completely differently and Mandible wants to challenge that? Why isn't it something that Mandible's aware of? He's scared of it getting back to his colony that he's yeah. got run. So, and, yeah. and it's something that he wants to be rid of. But that's such, like, even just right off the bat, that is a much better story that integrates all of those elements. Yeah. Uh, and then that particular scene with where they actually beat up Weaver, which is, again, it's another cruel moment, really. It's one of those scenes where, when we were watching it, I was like, did we skip a scene? Yeah. Because we come, we go from this protest scene, which obviously does feature Weaver and Azteca, and then all of a sudden, they're being interrogated 
but we don't find out how they find out that there's these friends at all. We just they're just suddenly in a interrogation room and being beaten up and, and yeah. So it, I kind of feel like there's some sort of deleted sequence there or something where there's like now oh, we'll just gloss over that bit there. Yeah. Following the scene, yeah, Cutter finds Bala really really easily and takes her back. There's no struggle. There's no other sequence involved there. He just mm-hmm. literally takes her back. And then this is where Z meets the character of Chip again. And this is where we're going about how these uh, setups are really, really clumsy because the idea is basically Chip can fly because obviously he's a wasp. His whole function in the whole film is to get Z back to the colony mm-hmm. really quickly. And that's all because obviously Cutter is an ant that has, has wings. Chip has wings too. So mm-hmm. they can get back at a similar time to get back to the main action from this other place which bears no interest. He does it almost because he's so sad at the time because his wife has died and it's something for him to do to simply it's a really, take his mind away from the fact. It's a really cruel thing and you it can see how washed up he is. so well. unnecessarily cruel yeah. for what is a character that's in the film for a grand total of about two minutes. And he's literally just there for mechanics. Yeah, absolutely. He is. He's just a mechanic. Of, yeah. He's just the mechanic of the plot. Yeah, exactly. He transports Z back to the colony whilst being really drunk and then... Disappears from the film. We never see him again. Nope. We never see whether he's better or anything like that. Probably uh, blew his little brains out, I reckon. Yeah, the film doesn't really care about him yeah. at all, considering how much uh, atrocity they've infringed <laughs> on him. They don't care about that character at all. I wouldn't have been surprised if they had like a mid credit sequence with um, that character with a gun in its mouth. Oh, Just God. it would have been, you know, so considering how the rest of the film plays out, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have surprised me whatsoever. Yeah. Threatening himself with his own stinger. Oh, God, yeah. That's a really um, odd note in that in that whole part of the film. To be fair, though, wasps are dicks. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't mind that much. <laughs> I actually like that about the character, though, is that it's a wasp, and normally wasps are the bad guys in films. I like that they made him <laughs> not bad. They didn't play on that. They didn't villainize him because he's a wasp. No, no. Uh, I, that, that's one minor thing but I, I imagine that's more to do with the fact that it's Dan Aykroyd yeah. more than the fact that the character's a wasp <laughs> yeah definitely yeah and then we get to really at this point find out the plot that General Mandible's been concocting which again is to flood the tunnel and the rest of the colony with uh, the water from the from the lake yeah. so that he can create uh, a new colony with his loyal army ants and it was at this point in the film where I kind of recognised, obviously, because this is a film that has Christopher Walken in it, that I realised that General Mandible's plot is very, very similar to the plot in uh, A View to a Kill, uh, <laughs> where Max Zorin, uh, the villain in the Bond film, uh, which is a, a classic Roger Moore train wreck. Uh, <laughs> so I do love it so, but it's, it's all over the shop. Yeah, where he tries to flood quite appropriately for this film, Silicon Valley, which is yeah. Palo Alto. So <laughs> we try to flood Silicon Valley with the water from a lake involving an earthquake. So <laughs> it's really, really similar. They haven't even stolen from the best Bond film. No, they've not. <laughs> they really haven't. And this third act is, again, it's really odd, right? So Z rescues Bala very, very easily. They come together. They come back together again very, very easily almost by accident, coincidentally, mm-hmm. they go to save... Well, at first, they go and try and stop them uh, digging the tunnel. And this is actually another li- a really, really nice little moment in the film because there is a character of the foreman 
which is actually probably one of the better characters in the whole film. This is a this is a character that who's completely um, deluded and uh, just driven entirely by orders and has no personality of his own. And there's a really nice little sequence in terms of like we've got orders to dig, therefore we yeah. dig. And then I think it's Z goes, uh, what, what, what if someone orders you to jump off a cliff? And he yeah. actually briefly considers it. <laughs> and it's really, really nice little moment. I, there's <laughs> plenty of nice little moments like that littered through the film that you just wish that the film was made up more of, you know? Yeah, yeah. At this point, the Foreman character, he makes the last little chink in the, in the earth and then it causes the flood. The flood, the water starts to seep through and then it basically just explodes. They have to run out of that tunnel. We get to... A point where Mandible is on the surface addressing his troops about creating a new colony and it's all a bit uh, Hitler-esque at yeah. this point. But again, we n- we never really find out why he's doing this. No. And we never really find out his end game and, and what he's planning to achieve once he's flooded this colony because it feels like he's not really given himself that many ants to play with to actually make a new colony. Well, obviously he's got Bala. But it doesn't feel like he's equipped himself with enough resources to actually create a new colony. No, no. And and they do try and explain it away in one of those really stereotypical of the genre moments where somebody say, says about how he's gone insane. But that's about it. That's about as much as they offer in terms of character motivation yeah, for what he's doing. Yeah, kind of, you get that kind of one brief line of him which sums him up where he goes, I am the colony. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's about it, though. You, you don't really have any inkling as to why mm-hmm. he's doing this at all. Yeah, absolutely. They decide to create a big ladder because they're being circled by this water. And obviously the only way is to get out through the ceiling of the of the tunnel. So this shows that the, the colony is a strong colony and they can they can work together to get out of any situation. And this is the moment, this is kind of Weaver's moment in the whole film mm-hmm. uh, where he's pretty much propping up the whole of the colony under his, under his shoulders. And they get to the point where, yeah, they can... They can come out on top, uh, and they get then they get to the surface, and then what plays out is probably the briefest standoff I've seen in a film for quite some time. Oh, wow, it yeah. That's literally probably all of thirty seconds when you have uh, Christopher Walken going, "Oh, look what they've done!" So yeah, like, this is a great colony in that you know classic <laughs> Christopher Walken fashion. And then yeah, they have a very brief standoff with um, like thirty seconds worth with, of standoff with uh, Z and Mandible. They fall in back into the into the hole, and uh, Z is saved by Cutter, who's obviously switched sides, and Mandible is given a really, really, really graphic death scene, which is in which he just falls in midair, and this is is visibly crushed on a twig. Yeah, under his own, yeah under his own weight and force, with a very very graphic sound effect. Yeah, it's a real like cracking of bones and snapping of <laughs> like. And and they cut back to the scene, and he's still lying there as well. When you go back to the when oh, there's yeah. another shot, and you can still see him visibly there. Yeah, <laughs> it's very very strange for this kind of film. Yeah, and he's just dispatched really easily. There's no kind of elaborate sequence mm-hmm. or anything like. They literally fall through a hole. Mandible dies. Z gets saved by Cutter. Well, that's it. The film feels very conveniently. Yeah, the film feels very sparse like that. You almost get the feeling that every shot is chosen to be the most efficient. So there's no yeah. real grand spectacular moments where the, you know, that face-off would have been a, a great moment for some spectacle. But instead, it's the dispatch with the body. 
very quickly just so they can get the story towards the end in a, the most efficient manner that they can because of the constraints that they're under. Yeah, and again, it's it's one of those things where the, the character of Cutter is purely there for mechanics. They It's like they've given him wings to be the, the do ex machina of the film, like in terms of he's got wings so he can displace Bala back to the colony and he can be there to save Z at yeah. that appropriate moment. And that's the only reason they've given that character wings. And yeah. that's the only reason he's really there. Yeah, that is the only reason he's there. Yeah. He's another one that just serves to get people from A to B and back again. Yeah. So that's kind of the end of the film. Like, Z and Bala get together mm-hmm. and um, planning to start a family. The colony's kind of back to where it is, but obviously better. Yeah. And um, that's about it, really. <laughs> uh, well, I know that we've just talked through the film and we've been very negative about it because, to be honest, it isn't a film that I find is particularly good anymore. But at the same time, there are some good elements to it. There are some jokes that really still make me laugh. And I remember laughing at it when I first saw it, especially to do with uh, Weaver and his little speech about the trouble that you can get into for impersonating an officer and the trouble you can get into for even listening to someone talking about impersonating an officer. It's a really nice little visual gag as well. Each little soldier ant has their, uh, their little compartments that they sleep in. And it's done like a big cross-section. So you can see them all sleeping in their little rooms across the whole image of the screen. And you can fit, see them all listening in yeah, on this got conversation. The, got the ears to the wall listening yeah. in. And then as soon as he says that line, they all just sort of go back to sleep again. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a really good visual image. And again, this is something that will press them with the next film. And, and this film really, really lacks is really good visual storytelling. Yes. Because they're so interested in these actors as voice actors everything Mm -hmm. is down to dialogue because that's all they've got to play with but because they they put them so much on a on a pedestal they have to use them so there's there's probably more dialogue than they actually need in the films absolutely yeah Um, which means that there's a lot of wasted time as well where the story does nothing because it's too busy in service of an actor a big name that they've got behind the film when it could be moving forward and doing something else uh, doing something far more exciting. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. That's Ants, which is obviously by no means a perfect film. <laughs> and it has a, a lot of problems that, looking back in hindsight, uh, are quite major issues. And they all seem to centre around those kind of star aesthetics and also in terms of the speed in which the film was planned and made. Yeah. Which, obviously, if they'd been given more time, we would have been able to have... Uh, probably rectified but i kind of in this kind of instance i probably don't blame the filmmakers because i feel like they were kind of really much uh up against the gun on this yeah i mean to be honest there is a gulf in quality between ants and a bug's life in terms of the animation but even so the ants would the animation in ants would um it'd be forgivable even now uh, for how it looks if the story was up to anything, because that's where it's most most flawed, in my opinion, yeah. is it, it's on a script level, and it doesn't matter if it's all if the animation's hazy or this shot doesn't work or there's too many caricatures. All that stuff wouldn't matter if the story was solid, mm. and it, if the story was focused and the dialogue was good, it wouldn't matter one jot. And that's where the film really really suffers for me. That's where it feels most rushed and. You can tell they're just trying to get something together so that they can just crack on with production as soon as possible, as need be, with these kind of animated productions. The, the only reason the film exists is to get back at Disney yeah. and the people involved in the, in, in the production of those films. That's all it is. It does have some merit, but that's really all the film's there for. 
and that's kind of sad in a way because I feel like like from the off, DreamWorks Animation really started off on the wrong foot. Yeah, I think. And I don't mean to be so completely down on DreamWorks because they are a production company that when they work, they work. And for me, I absolutely love How to Train Your Dragon. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I still really like Kung Fu Panda. And, and Shrek, obviously the first track. The very first track is is still great. Not carrying any of the sequels, including no, the second of, one, yeah, which again actually sequels. has its same problems. And so when, when they work, they do work when they get the right, right talents on board and they're not kind of constricted by those limitations of, well, you need to tool it around this particular guy and we need all these pop culture references littered through the production. When they aren't playing to those limitations, they, they work. They still yeah. do. Yeah, they do. Okay, so that's all we have to say about DreamWorks Ants. If you join us next time on Best Forgotten Movies, we'll be talking about Pixar's A Bug's Life. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at B4Movies and Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>